Uh, hello and welcome uh, to our last panel of the day, uh, which is Tradition and the People's Constitution. Uh, you have before you a panel um, that is uh, remarkably distinguished, um, indeed we might say um, illustrious, and it would be easy for me to make that case, the case for their distinction by reciting to you a long list of each panelist's accomplishments. Um, but this panel uh, also has uh, what I think is the virtue of being a remarkably humble panel that um, has specifically requested that I keep introductions to name and institutional affiliation only. Um, I am delighted to honor that request, um, mostly because uh, it uh, greatly reduces the chances that I will mess something up. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, um, our first speaker is uh, Professor William Eskridge, uh, who teaches at the Yale Law School. Joan, thank you for that really gracious introduction. And, and um, uh, I always appreciate Federal Society events because they're always the best run events in the world. As those of us who got picked up at the airport promptly on time, we'll always attest. So it's always a pleasure. Now, I'm not exactly sure what our panel is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about tradition uh, at some level or another and the role of courts. And these topics might be at war with one another. And we might have different efforts at synthesis. So let me present my effort at synthesis. And I am going to focus on tradition uh, and then segue uh, at various points into the role of courts. Uh, and I want to think constitutionally. Um, about the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment where the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause are located, at least as applied to the states. Uh, these are highly open textured provisions, uh, but they are constitutionally binding on the states. So they uh, conceivably cut across a wide swath of state laws that restrict people's liberty or treat people in different ways. Uh, but those clauses have never been interpreted as broadly uh, as they might be. So one topic that is worth reflecting on, judges have done this, law professors, and now federal society is, is what role might tradition play in providing perhaps a limiting principle or constraining principle for the judges applying uh, these very open textured provisions? And I think that is uh, as difficult uh, a question as it is important. And I want to use uh, as my text for thinking about that two decisions you probably know much about, uh, one is Bowers and Hardwick in 1986, where the Supreme Court, over a four-justice dissent, upheld the Georgia consensual sodomy law against a right of privacy attack, opinion by Justice White, who I'll say to the earlier panel, is a justice who evolved in a conservative direction in the not-too-recent past. Uh, the second case I want to talk about is parents involved. That's the decision last year where Chief Justice Roberts, also for a divided court, struck down um, uh, school district re-desegregation plans that included race-based criteria. Uh, he struck that down as inconsistent with the Equal Protection Clause. Now, how does tradition cut in these various cases? Um, well, there are three things I want to reflect upon. <clears throat> One is what counts as tradition. A second is at what level of generality do we or should we think about tradition? Uh, and third is what about the Burkean point of view, the evolution of tradition, or the way in which tradition might evolve. So the first question is, what counts as tradition? And I think there is a conundrum at the center of tradition here. 
uh, because tradition is often used just as misty history. Tradition could be the common law. Tradition could be the original discussions. Tradition could be the uh, legal developments, including cases as well as statutes at the time of or following the legal discussions, etc., etc. But tradition can also be precedent because both the equal protection and due process clauses have generated literally cartloads of precedent. Is that not also tradition? Uh, and Bowers and parents involved, it seems to me, are cases uh, where there is a war uh, among the different sources of tradition in those cases. So, for example, uh, in Bowers versus Hardwick, the dissent relied on more recent tradition. They relied on precedents from Griswold and Eisenstadt and Stanley and Moore and other cases that had uh, recognized a broad right of privacy. Uh, and the Supreme Court majority used tradition uh, as a reason not to expand these precedents, not to overrule any of the precedents, but to say we're not going to expand these precedents any further. Now, conversely, in parents uh, involved, uh, the court uh, majority uh, declined the dissent's invitation to use tradition as a reason to limit the expansion of precedents like Gratz uh, and other affirmative action striking down precedents, not Grutter, which upheld, uh, but decisions like Gratz. And the argument of the dissent was that we have a tradition in the United States, starting with Reconstruction statutes uh, and moving up into the Brown era, uh, uh, affirmed by Supreme Court opinions from Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg on, uh, where race, when it's used in a remedial way, uh, is evaluated under more lenient criteria. And the court in that case declined to rely or to accept the tradition argument as a reason not to expand uh, these recent precedents, like the Gratz precedent, of course, that arose here at the University of Michigan. Okay? I don't propose to resolve these conundrums. I merely propose to um, uh, give them to you. Here's the second one, and this is even more troublesome. And that is, when you talk about tradition, at what level of abstraction uh, do you talk about tradition? Because tradition is multiple. Tradition also might be plastic. Now, one way you can think about tradition, our history, is at a very high level of abstraction. Uh, and this, indeed, is the way the tradition was handled in parents' concern. It was a very high level of abstraction, the idea of color blindness, that we have a tradition of color blindness, a tradition of looking past color. Fair enough. Uh, the dissent, on the other hand, said that there's another tradition at a high level of generality, and that's the tradition we have of integration. Uh, and that tradition also is important. Uh, it's at a high level of generality, but it's in some conflict. Uh, look at Bowers versus Hardwick. The dissenting justices looked at tradition at a much higher level of generality than Justice White did. The dissenting justices said that the tradition in our country is a tradition of autonomous choices as regards important life decisions. The majority responded uh, with a, uh, an intermediate level of generality, say, no, the tradition should better be set at uh, decisions to uh, marry uh, and to raise children. Now, you can also look at tradition in these cases at a much lower level of abstraction, what Justice Scalia says, what is the specific practice that tradition might endorse? Okay? Now, there, the Bowers majority had another response to the dissent. The Bowers majority said that tradition supports us because there are millennia of moral teaching in the Anglo-American law that homosexual sodomy has always been criminalized, uh, said uh, the majority. In the uh, parents involved case, uh, the dissent looked at the lowest level of abstraction. The dissent's argument was that race-based remedial laws 
existed in Reconstruction. They were accepted as consistent with equal protection concepts. Uh, and that those laws, according to Justice Breyer's dissent, have, an, have a, a, a long history from Reconstruction to President Bush's statute, No Child Left Behind, which also has race-based criterions in that statute, as Justice Breyer pointed out. But here's the problem there. And that is that even tradition at this concrete level is manipulable and hard to deal with because often there is no precise parallel between the tradition of the past and the problem of the present. So, for example, in Bowers versus Hardwick, sounds like a pretty good argument uh, that millennia of moral teaching in Anglo-American law have always criminalized homosexual sodomy it's until you look at the evidence. And everything is contextual and everything should look at the evidence. Uh, the term homosexual sodomy did not even exist before the 20th century and is not used in a statute until the Texas statute, 1973, that was struck down in Lawrence. Uh, sodomy laws in the 19th century, when the 14th Amendment was framed, did not, not a single one of them, apply to oral sex, which was the conduct that was involved in the Bowers case. And indeed, even in the middle 20th century, most sodomy laws didn't apply to oral sex between women. Women were basically left out of sodomy laws. Uh, at least as regards homosexual conduct. And if you want to look at the reported sodomy prosecutions, in other words, the ones the framers might have known about in 1868, uh, there were no reported cases outside of the rape or public sex uh, context until well into the 20th century. So what is it the tradition that's being created or recognized in Bowers versus Hardwick, even at this very concrete level? You can do the same exercise in Parents Involved. Justice Breyer's very impressive use of tradition there is responded to by Justice Thomas. In his concurring opinion, Justice Thomas said, yes, but today is different. In Reconstruction, we had just ended slavery, and so the remedial use of race-based classifications is more justifiable in the 1860s than it would be in the new millennium. Okay? I could go on and on for many hours, but I won't. The point, it seems to me, is very simple. The use of tradition whether it's at a high level of abstraction or a low level of abstraction, is like looking out over the crowd and picking out your friends. And if there are not enough friends in the crowd, it's sending your law clerks into the crowd so that they can be picked out. <laughs> now, there's yet another way of looking at uh, tradition. <clears throat> and this is the way that was uh, recognized in Justice John Harlan's dissent in Poe versus Ullman, on which Charles Freed, the Solicitor General in the 1980s, uh, played a very decisive drafting hand. Uh, and that is the recognition that tradition in evolves. And it evolves not just through precedent, uh, but the commitments engendered by general constitutional purposes are clarified and applied to new circumstances over the years. So what about a concept, a middle-level concept, called evolving tradition, which might have advantages of workability, advantages of recognizability, and possibly even advantages of democracy. Now, the objection to evolving tradition, of course, is that it doesn't give the judge sufficient legal or democratically-based criteria by which the judge exercises her constitutional common law authority to interpret the equal protection and due process clauses. Uh, I think that's a solid objection, but I think there are ways of uh, constraining it. And my main suggestion is that as you look at evolving tradition, in other words, the idea that Justice Harlan had, that you should be particularly attentive to the evolving statutory-based traditions that are reflected by federal super statutes, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and state statutory convergences over the years. 
Uh, and indeed, if you look at tradition in that way, uh, which is legal and is democratic, statutory convergences, and provides criteria for judges, keeps them out of trouble, etc., it actually provides you a very interesting way to reconcile Bowers versus Hardwick with the decision that overruled it in Lawrence versus Texas. And indeed, you could even defend Justice White's opinion in Bowers versus Hardwick. Uh, because in 1986, uh, there were 26 states, and recently the D.C. Uh, government uh, uh, imposed upon by Congress, uh, that still in 1986 uh, made uh, consensual sodomy a serious crime. Almost all of them were felonies. In the period after Bowers versus Hardwick, between 1986 and 2003, half of those states and D.C. Uh, uh, revoked their sodomy uh, laws, at least as regards to consensual behavior. So one can argue, actually, I know Justice Kennedy didn't say this, but one can argue that Bowers versus Hardwick was a defensible decision, at least in not striking down based upon a privacy rationale, uh, and that Lawrence versus Texas uh, reflected a different kind of judgment, uh, and one that was not necessarily simply a judicial willful judgment, uh, but a judgment that was based upon a statutory common law process. Now, I think Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion in Parents Involved uh, offers the same analysis. Remember, Parents Involved had a majority opinion as to much of it, but Justice Kennedy only concurred in the result uh, as to a number of issues. And what Justice Kennedy, the key vote, and therefore the law as to some issues today, suggested in Parents Evolved, is that uh, districts can diversify. Colorblindness is a purpose of the 14th Amendment, but so is diversification, said Justice Kennedy. With Roberts agreeing on the first point, Breyer agreeing with him on the second point. Uh, but Justice Kennedy says, uh, if you're going to try to diversify using race-based criteria, you're going to have to satisfy a deliberative requirement uh, that shows me and shows the rest of the court that you've looked at other alternatives and that you're invoking the least restrictive means. Now, what about the marriage issue? We were also asked to talk about the same-sex marriage issue. Uh, it does seem to me, uh, and I'm going to have to shorten my analysis just a little bit, but it does seem to me that this same kind of common law process does give us a guidepost how to deal with same-sex marriage and also gives us a guidepost that justifies how we actually did deal with different race marriage. Because remember, for most of our history, just as same-sex marriages have not been recognized, different race marriages were also not recognized in most of the United States. And indeed, they were a crime in Virginia for most of Virginia's history as a colony uh, and as a state in the United States. Uh, tradition strongly uh, works against recognizing different race marriages, at least as a constitutional matter, as well as same-sex marriages, uh, ditto. Precedent muddies up the matter uh, in some respects. Uh, from Brown on for different race marriage, uh, from the sex discrimination cases, and possibly even Lawrence for same-sex marriage. Justice Scalia tells us in the Lawrence dissent that now that Lawrence is the law, that same-sex marriage is the next step. I wouldn't bet that he'll vote on that, but that is what he argues as a matter of logic. So what's going to happen on these issues? Well, as you know, and if you don't, I'm going to now tell you, the Supreme Court uh, in 1967 did strike down different race marriage statutes statutes that uh, abolished or criminalized or prohibited different race marriages. It's interesting the Supreme Court did not do this in the 1950s when it decided Brown versus Board. And I think the reason is statutory constitutionalism, state statutory convergences, and I might also add federal super statutes such as the 64 Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act, both of which came right before Loving versus Virginia. Uh, in 1951, uh, there were, or 1954, when Brown was decided, there were 
uh, 30 states that barred different race marriages. Uh, after Brown and by 1967, that number was down to 16 or 17. And that was when the Supreme Court struck them down. Uh, it seems to me the lesson for same-sex marriage is painfully obvious. Uh, there's no reason for Justice Scalia to worry that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to impose same-sex marriages on the United States. One state has now recognized them, and a number of states have recognized civil unions, domestic partnerships, uh, and a number of alternatives. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court would be foolish, and they're not foolish, uh, to uh, take a case uh, and use uh, any kind of case as a vehicle for imposing same-sex marriage as a matter of constitutional meaning. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to stay out of the issue, except possibly for choice of uh, law purposes, uh, and that is good for America as well as good for the Supreme Court. Uh, where this is going to be uh, uh, battled, and where it should be battled, frankly, is at the states. This is called the Federal Society, NESPA. <laughs> well, you guys are right. You've always been right. Uh, and you're right on the issue of same-sex marriage. It's going to be battled state by state. Uh, and different state judges are going to interpret their state constitutions. Well, we might ask, how? How should state judges interpret their state constitutions? And my answer, I'm mainly a professor of legislation, so this might explain the answer. And the answer is, uh, you follow legislative initiatives. So, for example, there, you don't have to worry uh, in Michigan uh, whether your state Supreme Court is going to impose same-sex marriage on you. It's not, I'm going to tell you. And it has nothing to do with methodology. Uh, it has only uh, to do uh, with uh, Michigan is not ready for it yet. Uh, there's no legal basis in Michigan for this kind of adventure to transpire. Uh, where we have had adventurous judicial decisions have been following legislative leads. So, for example, legislatures and governors in one in a couple of cases in New Jersey, Massachusetts and Vermont adopted limited recognition of domestic partnership unions before the highest courts of all three of those states required greater equality. In Massachusetts, it was same-sex marriage. In New Jersey and Vermont, it was essentially, ultimately, civil unions. Uh, in Hawaii, which was the first case back in 1993, uh, the Hawaii Supreme Court, in response to legislative rebuff, pulled back and ultimately declined uh, to recognize same-sex um, marriages. Uh, in Hawaii, now we have reciprocal beneficiaries, which is what the legislature offered. Uh, do the courts have any role to play other than following uh, legislative leads? Conceivably, and again, not in Michigan, but in states that have anti-discrimination laws, states that have repealed their sodomy laws, states that have uh, uh, enacted hate crime laws on sexual orientation matters. In other words, where the legislature and the people have already taken the lead in creating um, uh, conditions for possible equal citizenship for gay and lesbian citizens. So this is a small list of states. They're clustered in the northeast and the west coast. Uh, at some point in the next 10 years, uh, they will also start clustering around the Great Lakes. So watch out, Michigan. Uh, and it seems to me the main role of judges here uh, is and should be not to usurp the issue, but the most the judges are going to be able to do, and probably the most they should do, is reverse the burden of inertia. Uh, what does that mean? Well, uh, if there's no uh, constitutional litigation, it's obviously up to the legislature. It is very difficult to enact things through the legislature, and it is triply difficult for a traditionally despised minority. You not only have to go through the various veto gates uh, that the legislature has, it's going to engender terrible controversy because there are two sides to the issue easily, and any kind of conflictual issue is very difficult. 
And then, frankly, there remains in America an enormous amount of anti-gay prejudice uh, and, uh, and, indeed, hatred. Uh, and some of that actually is harbored by legislators uh, as well as judges. Uh, so it is triply difficult. It's by no means impossible, but it's triply difficult uh, to achieve these uh, legislative uh, things uh, uh, without some kind of uh, push, even in friendly states. And this is essentially what happened in Massachusetts, Vermont, New Jersey, and Hawaii. In all of those states, uh, the courts didn't finally determine same-sex marriage. Instead, they reversed the burden of inertia. They said the burden is no longer on the gay and lesbian couples to go to the legislature and get some, some crumb. Instead, the burden is on the uh, legislature uh, to provide them with something and then to provide a justification for whatever it is providing or it's not providing, marriage, unions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in all of these states, uh, or at least Massachusetts and Vermont for sure, New Jersey, probably Hawaii for sure, in all of these states, uh, high court interpretations of their state constitutions were immediately reversible by the people. Uh, in Massachusetts and Vermont were, have required two legislatures in succession to vote by majority and then a legislative referendum uh, to confirm that did not happen in either state. Uh, in Hawaii, uh, it was simply one session of the legislature, um, and it was adopted uh, by a referendum of the people that stopped same-sex marriage in Hawaii. And that, it seems to me, is a critical difference uh, between same-sex uh, marriage litigation in the states and in the federal government. Federal constitution, as was said earlier in this day, uh, is at a high level of generality and is almost impossible to amend. Uh, that is not true of most state constitutions. Most of them are much more detailed, much more recent, and much easier to amend, uh, which means that any kind of judicial action is almost never going to be the final word. But that's mine. Uh, Thank you very much, Professor Eskridge. Uh, next, we will hear from Professor Tom Merrill. Um, I, I guess the least I can do is give the um, fancy chairs that all these people hold. Um, so I will amend uh, with respect to Professor Eskridge and say that he is the John A. Garber Professor of Jurisprudence at the Yale Law School. And uh, Professor Merrill is the Charles Keller Beekman Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Um, uh, those of you who have had me for constitutional law, um, I hope you won't hold it too much against Professor Merrill that he taught me everything I know. Thanks very much, Joan. Um, I'm supposed to be the big proponent of traditionalism on this panel. Uh, and so it is with not a little guilt uh, that I tell you I'm not going to stand up here and defend traditionalism today. Um, uh, instead, I'm going to concentrate on the other half of our charge, which is to consider uh, popular constitutionalism. Uh, and in particular, I want to address the question of whether uh, when tradition runs out uh, and fails to provide uh, a meaningful uh, resolution of contested issues of constitutional law, whether we should turn to popular constitutionalism as a way of filling the gap. Uh, popular constitutionalism, as some of you may know, is all the rage now in uh, academia. Uh, it started more or less with Bruce Ackerman at Yale, who came up with the idea of constitutional moments, uh, which are sort of uh, upsurges of popular sentiment opposed to current constitutional regimes. Uh, those sentiments then get enacted into law. Um, 
and become uh, a basis for a new constitutional understanding, which in effect is a de facto amendment of the Constitution. Uh, other scholars like Larry Kramer at Stanford and Mark Tushnet at Harvard uh, have argued recently that the Constitution should be interpreted more by the people themselves uh, rather than elite judges. And so popular constitutionalism is very much the rage. Uh, interestingly enough, and this goes back to the first panel of today, uh, we have, I think, a recent uh, controlled experiment in popular constitutionalism, uh, which I think provides some interesting lessons about how uh, and when popular constitutionalism might work uh, in interpreting uh, contested issues of constitutional law. I'm speaking in particular about the uh, backlash to the Kelo decision. Um, uh, Kelo, as you know, uh, resulted in a 5-4 decision in which the Supreme Court said there's no per se prohibition on using eminent domain for economic development. But the court went on to invite uh, state legislators uh, and state judiciaries uh, to develop, uh, as a matter of state constitutional or statutory law, uh, more restrictive uh, conceptions of when eminent domain uh, could be used. Uh, the invitation was uh, received wholeheartedly. Uh, I think according to the latest tally, there have now been 42 states uh, that have adopted some type of legislative or uh, popular response uh, to the Kelo decision, uh, in each case cutting back on eminent domain to some extent uh, from what the Supreme Court authorized as a matter of federal constitutional law. And perhaps more interestingly than the, than, than the 42 is that uh, 12 states uh, considered uh, popular referenda in the November 2006 elections, which would restrict uh, the power of eminent domain, and in 10 of those states, the public voted by comfortable margins to, in effect, uh, impose as a matter of state law, some cases constitutional law, in some cases non-constitutional law, a per se rule against using eminent domain for economic development. So we have a situation where the highest court um, in the land, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, goes one way, and uh, the public uh, goes uh, the other way in very short order. Uh, and this uh, is, I think, an example of popular constitutionalism uh, in action. Now, why might popular constitutionalism be an appropriate way to resolve the question about the limits on the use of eminent domain? One reason, I think, is that the judiciary has largely failed uh, in the process of developing uh, meaningful restrictions on eminent domain. I don't have time to go into the whole sorry tale uh, here, uh, but uh, let it be said that uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, uh, over its history, has encountered this issue about a dozen times, never once seeing fit to strike down an exercise of eminent domain as uh, violating the public use requirement of the federal constitution. Uh, and the court uh, never articulated any sort of consistent set of principles as to what might or might not uh, violate the public use requirement. State courts haven't really done much better. If you look at state judicial uh, jurisprudence on the issue of public use, you'll find uh, a significant number of decisions invalidating exercises of eminent domain. About one in six uh, state appellate court decisions strike down the use of eminent domain as violating some kind of state public use requirement. But there's no consistent theory, no consistent conception of what public use means that emerges from these cases. So the judiciary has tried and failed uh, to really articulate uh, some kind of jurisprudence uh, of eminent domain or when eminent domain should be used. The deeper reason for that, I think, is that the issue is one that involves uh, 
conflictual values that are very difficult to, they're very incommensurate. It's very difficult to sort of weigh these values against each other. Um, on the one hand, you have a sort of a strong argument for a broad power of eminent domain in order to overcome holdout problems that per permit uh, uh, assembly of parcels of land in new configurations or footprints, uh, which would facilitate some kind of project which is in the public interest. This affirmative rationale for eminent domain really has no stopping point. Uh, it, there's no natural limitation on public projects or projects used by the public as opposed to other types of projects that may just produce positive externalities uh, or other types of advantages to the public. Uh, juxtaposed against the, an argument in favor of broad eminent domain is a strong argument against using eminent domain uh, willy-nilly. Uh, every time you use eminent domain, you in effect expropriate a portion of the value that people have in their property. You compensate them uh, for the fair market value of what's taken, but you take away the subjective attachment that they have to the property without providing any compensation for that. No one's really been able to figure out how to measure that subjective value in any meaningful sense. Uh, and so uh, every exercise of eminent domain is unfair. Uh, it takes uh, the property of a few people, takes away their subjective valuation without compensation for the benefit of uh, the many. And this argument against using eminent domain has no stopping point. In the opposite direction, it's true of every exercise of eminent domain, uh, whether it be for a public project or a private project uh, or what have you. So we have these conflicting values underlying eminent domain. We have the judiciary uh, failing to come up with any kind of uh, legal principle that would consistently resolve these cases. So the suggestion might be, let's use popular constitutionalism. And indeed, why stop uh, with state legislatures or local legislative bodies coming up with principles for limiting eminent domain? Let's go right to the source and ask the people themselves uh, whether they think, uh, what they think, where they think the balance should be struck uh, in using eminent domain. And there's been some interesting uh, recent uh, theorizing about this. Um, uh, what I find most interesting is some literature. Uh, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard uh, is the main author here I'm thinking of, who has tried to an analogize um, public or popular constitutional decision making to the uh, to the jury. Uh, and in, and, and in particular, uh, utilizing the so-called Condorcet jury theorem, uh, which is a proposition of mathematics that basically says that many minds are more likely to get things right than few minds or one mind. And so more precisely, if you have a group of people who are asked to make a decision on a particular question, and the members of the group are at least on average more likely to get the answer right than wrong, then the more people in the group, the larger the group, uh, the more likely you are to get the right answer. Uh, the usual illustration of this is a bunch of people guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar. So if everyone in this room were to guess the number of jelly beans in a jar and put the, the guess on a slip of paper, the average of our guesses would be very close to correct to the number of jelly beans in the jar, whereas if we individually try to make a guess, uh, the guesses would be all over the place. Uh, so um, the Condorcet jury theorem suggests that maybe if we have some kind of public referendum about eminent domain or other similar contested constitutional questions, uh, we might get closer to the right answer, however we're going to define right answer, uh, than if we let uh, smaller groups like, say, nine elderly lawyers wearing black robes uh, vote on how the decision ought to come out. Uh, and maybe popular constitutionalism is, in fact, uh, the way to go. Uh, the literature on the Condorcet jury theorem, however, suggests that there are some limiting principles uh, in, in when the principle works and when it doesn't work. 
uh, that we'd have to also pay attention to those. One of the limiting principles is that the uh, voters have to be, on average, more likely to get the right answer than the wrong answer. If you flip that around and say that the voters are more likely to get it wrong than to get it right, then the more people you have making the decision, the more likely it is that the decision is going to be wrong. So you have to be pretty sure that uh, the basic condition that people are, on average, more likely to get it right is, uh, is applies in a given situation. Um, you also, uh, another condition that the theorem apply, uh, requires is that every member of the decisional group has to be exposed to the same body of information. So this, this works for juries and, and uh, judge, appellate judicial panels and things like that because they're all exposed in a very controlled way to the same amount of information. Uh, but if you have a group of people that have very disparate information, uh, the theorem doesn't necessarily apply. A third condition is that the voters have to decide independently. They all have to make their independent decision. They can't, there can't be any log rolling. There can't be any vote buying. Uh, they can't even be any jaw boning, boning back and forth trying to persuade each other um, about the uh, correct answer uh, to the problem. Uh, well, I, uh, these three conditions suggest to me that uh, we ought to uh, have some reservations about using uh, the public through referendum to uh, resolve um, questions of constitutional law. To take the Kelo case, for example, it's pretty clear to me that before the Kelo case was handed down, probably less than 1% of the public had any idea what eminent domain means. Uh, uh, somebody in the, this morning's panel mentioned that Kelo was an educational moment, uh, uh, that suddenly everyone now uh, did understand uh, what eminent domain means. Uh, but I'm not really sure that their understanding of what eminent domain means after this little moment of, uh, of publicity uh, was uh, anything that would uh, constitute enough information in order to make us confident uh, that uh, they were more likely to have correct and incorrect answers about how to strike the balance between uh, when to use eminent domain and when not to use eminent domain. There's a general problem here of rational ignorance. It doesn't really make sense for most people to inform themselves about the conflicted policies underlying eminent domain uh, or when it might be used and, and not be used um, uh, because eminent domain is very likely to affect most people. It's a rather unusual exercise of governmental power. Another problem uh, that the Kelo episode suggests is one of uh, decision-making uh, subject to biases and heuristics that distort people's decision-making. Uh, um, the, the opinion polls uh, that came out after Kelo, I think, are particularly indicative of the potential problems here. Uh, a number of polls asked people what they thought of the Kelo issue. Uh, and by the way, the opinion polls show that people oppose Kelo by uh, percentages running from 80% to 96% uh, opposition. Uh, the highest negative vote on any public policy issue that pollsters have ever encountered. Uh, but many of the polls asked people what they thought of eminent domain uh, by describing it as a seizure of property uh, by the government. Uh, uh, seizure implies lawless, sudden uh, 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 non-deliberative sort of action by the government. It's not surprising that people would think that seizures are, ba are bad things. Um, other polls, quite astonishingly, as far as I'm concerned, failed to inform the uh, people being polled that uh, eminent domain requires the payment of compensation uh, when property is taken. So uh, people were, in effect, being asked whether they thought that expropriation of property was a good idea for the benefit of the Pfizer Corporation or something like that. Uh, and I would be rather alarmed if the American public didn't think that was a bad idea. Uh, so uh, the high percentages are uh, being driven here in part by the way in which the issue is being framed uh, by the pollsters. Uh, a, um, a third problem, which I think, uh, to my mind, is perhaps the most important, is that we have to distinguish between 
uh, the public response to a problem when it's posed as an abstract issue uh, and their potential response when it's proposed in the form of a concrete case or situation. Uh, I would venture to guess as a general matter uh, that when people are asked about issues in the abstract, they're more likely to respond in a polarized fashion or in a very one-sided fashion. So, for example, if you ask people whether or not they think abortion should be lawful, my guess would be that people would line up in a kind of uh, barbell-shaped uh, distribution with many saying, uh, no, it should be unlawful, and others saying, no, it should always be lawful. Um, but if you ask people uh, to decide whether in a particular case, which is described in some detail, uh, what ought to happen, you would probably get something that looks more like a bell-shaped curve uh, distribution. Uh, and I think uh, I would surmise the same thing is true of eminent domain. I actually don't just have to surmise that. Uh, there's some recent social science work which I think confirms this. Uh, two of my former colleagues at Northwestern, uh, Janice Nadler and Sherry Diamond, have recently undertaken an examination of all public opinion polling on the Kilo issue. Uh, and the following passage in particular uh, struck me as quite revealing. They say, the reaction depends on what is taken, whether land or a business or a home, and how it will be used. At one extreme, using eminent domain to take vacant land and run down buildings for a school garners almost uniform 88% support and minimal outright rejection 7%. Part of this strong support might be explained by the minimal harm to the owner because of the nature of the property taken. When low-value homes are taken for the same purpose to build a school, support drops from 88% to 33%. Thus, a large percentage of the respondents reject the idea of taking homes even for an important purpose. Another source of strong support for the use of eminent domain in this situation is the good use to which the land would be put. Note that although using eminent domain to take low-value homes to build a school garners the support of 33%, this support drops to 7% when low-value homes are taken to build high-value homes and only 4% when low-value homes are taken to build a shopping center. On the other hand, the per when the purpose of the building is, uh, if the purpose of building a shopping center is uh, uh, juxtaposed to the taking of vacant or rundown buildings, then 55% of the respondents uh, suggest that eminent domain is appropriate. Uh, so uh, uh, I would emphasize that this data seems to suggest that people are engaged in an implicit balancing. Uh, what property has been taken, what's the use going to be that its property is being put uh, toward. And the more data you give them, the more specifics you give them, uh, more concrete the case is made, uh, the more nuanced uh, the judgment uh, uh, becomes. And I think this would be important in structuring uh, any kind of um, public uh, input on uh, the resolution of constitutional uh, problems. So what sort of uh, tentative uh, conclusions might I draw from these uh, uh, reflections on the post-Kilo uh, experience with popular uh, constitutionalism. Uh, first, I think it's pretty clear, at least to me, that uh, popular referenda are only appropriate if the issue is one that has proven to be resistant to resolution using conventional tools of legal analysis. Uh, I don't think anybody would propose that we use referenda to decide whether or not slavery should be abolished or whether or not we should have free speech on political questions or anything of that nature if, if the polity has settled uh, on certain fundamental constitutional principles, uh, by all means, have the judiciary enforce those principles. Uh, don't put them up uh, to a public vote. Uh, secondly, I think it's important uh, that uh, uh, whatever the voting unit is uh, on the uh, constitutional question, uh, that the issue has to be one that the members who are voting uh, care enough about uh, so that they can be expected to have gathered uh, a meaningful amount of information uh, on the issue. Uh, 
Uh, somebody earlier in the session, I think this morning, talked about a referendum on whether or not uh, uh, pigs should be kept in certain small cages uh, uh, in the state of Florida, for example. And I think an issue like that probably is not one that enough people care about to adequately inform themselves, uh, and one would be suspect, suspect of um, the meaningfulness of using a referendum. Similarly, asking people whether or not the Dormant Commerce Clause should apply, apply to taxation uh, is something that's unlikely to re, uh, reach uh, uh, meaningful results. So it has to be something that's salient to the public, that the public cares about. I think some of Bill's issues about same-sex marriage and so forth would clearly qualify under the salience uh, requirement. These are things that people understand uh, uh, very well and uh, have an opinion, informed opinion about. Uh, thirdly, and this is sort of related to the second, I think it's very, we, it's very important to structure the, the size of the jurisdictional unit in which the referendum takes place Again, to maximize the possibility that people, uh, the likelihood that people will have uh, meaningful information about the question. And, and here I would, I would cautiously endorse the idea of using referenda to decide uh, contested issues of public use for economic uh, development projects, provided the referenda takes place at a small enough local level uh, so that we can have a fair degree of confidence that the people voting in the referendum uh, know uh, enough about the project and about the people that are going to be displaced and so forth uh, to render uh, an informed decision about it. So to take, for example, the New London case, um, I think it's fairly reasonable to assume that the people living in the city of New London uh, understood what the Fort Trumbull redevelopment project was about. They knew about the condition of the property before it was going to be taken by, by eminent domain. They had some sense of whether or not the proposed project was likely to succeed or fail. Uh, and they would have some knowledge about the people who are going to be displaced, including the homeowners. Uh, and they would, I think, to a significant degree, identify with those people because the people voting would also be homeowners uh, in the same community. They would therefore understand that if eminent domain can be used to take these people's property, perhaps that's a precedent uh, that would allow my property to be taken uh, sometime uh, in the future. Lastly, I think we'd have to be very careful about the way in which the issues are framed. Uh, through referenda. Uh, a lot of the initiatives that were talked about this morning are ones where interest groups write the proposals and determine the timing, uh, and that can result in kind of slanted or biased uh, responses uh, to the proposals. Uh, we'd have to have, I think, some mechanism for uh, trying to assure uh, that the proposals are framed in such a way that they don't elicit uh, unduly um, uh, emotional or one-sided uh, results. But I think uh, it's certainly worth uh, experimenting uh, about. Uh, the judiciary hasn't been able to figure out uh, how to decide when eminent domain should be used and when it shouldn't be used. Um, the political process that was uh, jump-started by Kelo is all over the map. The 42 states that adopted various laws in response to Kelo uh, have, uh, n there's no rhyme or reason or consistent theme to the types of uh, uh, reactions that they came up with. Uh, and I think in these circumstances, some kind of uh, significant experimentation with local referendum uh, to resolve the eminent domain issue uh, uh, is certainly worth uh, considering uh, uh, in a situation where tradition and originalism and other traditional tools of constitutional interpretation have simply run out. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Professor Merrill. Um, next, we will hear from Professor Reba Siegel. She is the Deputy Dean and Nicholas Katzenbach Professor of Law and Professor of American Studies at the Yale Law School. 
Hi. Um, so this is um, an interesting experience for me. I don't often come to Federalist Society conferences. And um, not being a regular, I um, assumed that I was going to actually speak on what it was that I was asked to speak on. And so I probably will be the only person here who's going to talk about Glucksburg. Um, but I'm going to work my way up to it and then uh, uh, beyond it uh, in a way that I hope takes up the questions of traditionalism that the panel is framing and will, at its outer reaches, uh, touch on issues of popular constitutionalism that are obviously in play here. Um, so I happen to have an interest in the very different ways in which we talk about uh, the Constitution and talk about history in interpreting the Constitution. Um, just as much as we have um, ways of summoning the Constitution as text, as structure, as doctrine, we also have many forms of talk about the relevant forms of history that bear on questions of constitutional interpretation. So perhaps um, for this group, most obviously, there's the history of the Constitution's ratification, um, the stuff of uh, originalist interpretation. There's also, um, as Bill was pointing out, uh, the materials of uh, doctrine, the chain of interpretation, which creates uh, a, a history reaching from the point of the Constitution's adoption to the present and which entangles in, in various of its turns all kinds of other attendant history along the way. There's collective memory that's relevant to the ways in which we interpret the Constitution. Think about um, the role of our um, sense of national political history of the revolution, slavery, the civil war, um, or of fights over the court in 1937 or Roe. All of this, of course, bears on our sense of the Article Three power. Custom is also another form of history that bears on the way in which we interpret the Constitution, a sense of the history and traditions of the nation, its norms, its ways of life. And of course, that's the topic of this panel. I at least want to at the gateway point out that there's some tension between understanding the Constitution as a compact and understanding it through the lens of custom, that it is, um, in fact, quite a different thing to understand the Constitution's authority as deriving from an act of lawmaking and residing in a text and understanding it as arriving out of uh, custom or a way of life, history and traditions. There are moves to try to shrink this uh, difference or distance between the two understandings of relevant pasts. Um, we can treat tradition as an expression of democratic will, especially if we consider or try to adduce tradition by considering institutions of preference aggregation for evidence of a tradition's existence or its meaning. So we can look at what it is that other, say, state legislatures have done. I think this is a theme that will run through the panel. But it still is a stretch in the sense that tradition offers no specific text to interpret and results obviously in various forms of its own ambiguities. And it also blurs what would count as the relevant uh, community of constitution makers to consult who are tradition's authors. So how is it then that Chief Justice Rehnquist and then subsequently Justice Scalia have come to embrace the Glucksburg history and traditions test? One way of understanding this arises out of a case in, in uh, 1997 in which the court upheld Washington's law prohibiting assisted suicide as not prohibited by the 14th Amendment's uh, due process clause, substantive due process law. 
So one way of understanding the Glucksberg Doctrine and uh, uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist and ultimately Justice Scalia's convergence on Glucksberg's history and traditions test is to locate it in a several decades struggle against Roe. You can think of the Reagan campaigns, uh, the ways in which the concerns reverberate through litigation of Bowers, uh, through the Bork confirmation hearings, um, Scalia's opinion in Michael H. and Gerald D., and finally, the Rehnquist opinion in Glucksburg, and see and understand why it is that ultimately uh, Justice Scalia uh, will embrace the Glucksburg standard as a way of disciplining substantive due process law, which, which um, I think we understand he's not so great a fan. Um, I'll just read you the, the language, relevant language of, of, from the Rehnquist opinion. Uh, he announces there that Substantive due process analysis has two primary features. We've regularly observed that the due process clause specifically for, uh, protects fundamental rights and liberties, which are objectively deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition <clears throat> and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, such that neither uh, liberty nor justice would exist if they were sacrificed. And then he goes on to observe that we need a careful description of the asserted fundamental liberty interest. This is descends from Scalia. I'm not going to take the group's time, um, except to say that uh, this test, uh, in fact, innovated on prior law, even Scalia's own opinions uh, in the uh, uh, Michael H. case and in uh, White's opinion in Bowers in trying to sort of, instead of framing this area of law as either uh, the ordered liberty or the history and traditions, really making it a joint, you need both, it's and it wanted to be an exclusive, exclusive account of the law, but the court itself didn't follow this. And so while the decision has never been reversed, it's not managed to reshape the law in the way that its authors hoped, and uh, it's become, in fact, alive, importantly, in dissent. Uh, Justice Scalia's exasperated uh, objections to the court, to Justice Souter, to Justice Kennedy, and others of his brethren. Now, in the remainder of uh, my remarks today, I um, would like to uh, take a look at what it is that Glucksburg uh, wants to do and to think about its attractiveness along a couple of different uh, lines. <clears throat> it certainly has a lively life at the moment as a tool for critique, and it's always possible, um, given a certain outcome in November, uh, that there might be the votes for it to really have a much more lively uh, place in the court's 14th Amendment jurisprudence. And so the question becomes what kind of a uh, an undertaking as this. Um, I thought about exploring the tensions between uh, the understanding of constitutional authority uh, in originalism and in this idea of traditionalism, uh, the sort of tension between the Bork and the Burkean uh, view of the project, emphasizing differences between them. But I thought in the end that I um, found more interesting to explore uh, and I, I should say, if you're interested in thinking about that question, there's a, a wonderful uh, paper that Mike McConnell has written, sort of situating that is definitely worth a read. It's the Baum Lecture in the University of Illinois Law Review. Um, but I, I decided that what would be interesting to do on this occasion is to think some about a certain kind of affinity in AIM between the originalist project and the form of traditionalism that appears uh, in the Glucksburg line of cases. Um, and that is that uh, they both share in common the aspiration of cabining judicial discretion, right? That's a, certainly a concern uh, uh, that has attended this entire, uh, the elaboration of this entire body of law. 
So there is here uh, an account of uh, a history and traditions jurisprudence set, off, set forth that aims to uh, be objective as a standard and leach out of the process of interpreting and extending the 14th Amendment's due process clause uh, judicial value judgments. The idea is that this is going to be objective. It's going to restrain the judge um, from his or her uh, own engagement, internal normative engagement uh, in the project. And I wanted to just observe in passing that um, there is, first of all, uh, I think actually Bill was raising this, a series of questions about the feasibility of doing this. That is to say about whether this project can be made mechanical. And there's writing uh, Tribe and Dorf and others, um, along the lines you've heard today, worry about tradition at what level of generality or particularity. So long as there's that degree of ambiguity, there's discretion that can be uh, uh, employed or deployed by the decision maker in a way that will allow value to guide uh, the decision of the case. There's concern about the forms of relevant evidence. You can think about debates over a case like Roper and know wh what do you consult as evidence of this tradition, which relevant decision makers might be uh, there to vindicate it. Um, but there's also just an interesting, interesting question about the normative attractiveness of this project that really snagged my attention. That is to say, why would you want uh, judges in the business of trying to simply uh, determine an existing tradition uh, as a reason for simply uh, uh, restricting democratic processes that varied from it, independent of the value that it might embody? It struck me as a very strange enterprise. I thought of just some examples of it. For example, a common law abortion was legal until quickening. Uh, which is the first perception of fetal movement and uh, around the fourth month. And at some point, states decided that they were interested in criminalizing the practice. And this represented an enormous deviance from an existing tradition. Now, you could think of bad or good reasons for treating this uh, uh, as uh, uh, that is to say, the abortion decision, as a liberty protected by the uh, 14th Amendment or, or Fifth Amendment. But in order to think about that question, you'd have to do it from an internal values-based perspective. And the idea that you could just determine that from the outside struck me as passing strange. Another example of a common law rule is um, the, the master or the father's um, property interest in his children's labor, their service. Um, at a certain point in time, we have a child labor laws that come along and begin to change what was otherwise universally the common law rule and universal practice. And it's definitely experienced as entrenching on, I don't know, we use the language of privacy, freedom, property interest, whatever. It was doing all of those good things and resisted along those lines um, quite passionately. Uh, in order to think about whether law should be there, you would need actually, I think, someone from an internal value-based standpoint trying to determine the rights or wrongs of this, not something mechanical. Otherwise, bottom line, in a democratic federated polity, it doesn't seem like there's much of a role for this kind of enforcement of tradition. It has to be internal, internally normative. So to conclude this branch of my observations here, I'm dubious about the feasibility of a mechanical objective jurisprudence of the kind that Glucksberg is talking about, and I don't understand it as a normatively attractive use of judicial power in a federated constitutional democracy. That is to say the kind of value-free judging that is aspirationally pointed to in that decision. 
So the question becomes, does that kill the project, or is there a case for value-based judicial enforcement of history and traditions? I'm sort of mulling about this question as I'm reading and thinking about Glucksburg, a case that I actually hadn't spent so much time thinking about. And in thinking about that question, I decided to um, uh, explore examples of history and uh, traditions jurisprudence in another context or two. And so I'm going to just mention them briefly for you to um, with, along with my panelists, expand the range of possibly relevant uh, cases here. So the two cases I'm going to talk about briefly are uh, the court's 1983 case, Marsh against Chambers, in which the court uh, upheld uh, the uh, practice of legislative prayer uh, uh, under the Establishment Clause, and also its 95 decision uh, in Lopez uh, under the Commerce Clause, which I'm sure all of you are um, profoundly uh, familiar with. So the Marsh case um, is an interesting case in which Chief Justice Berger is uh, essentially saying that uh, it ought to be constitutional under the Establishment Clause to, uh, uh, for states to open their legislative proceedings with prayer. And in so doing or in so announcing, he is uh, coming to a result that seemed presumably to everyone on the court uh, completely at odds with the Lemon test uh, then prevailing. Uh, which the dissent argued at length, and uh, the majority just never mentioned. Instead, the opinion emphasizes both uh, original understanding and the unbroken practice of legislative bodies in having uh, uh, their proceedings start with a prayer. Um, and it's hard to make the originalist argument really govern as a matter of positive law in the sense that this was Nebraska and the First Amendment is written, Congress shall make no law abridging, and it's just not, it's obviously an extension of uh, the original understanding, and the opinion is reasoning, leaning quite heavily on this history and traditions argument. What struck me as so fascinating about it is that this case is decided in 83, um, right after uh, Reagan comes to power in a campaign that is passionately criticizing existing jurisprudence and cases like Lemon for having undervalued the role of prayer in civic life. And uh, I just have from the um, Republican uh, Party's uh, platform, it uh, calls, we support Republican initiatives in the Congress to restore the right of individuals to participate in voluntary non-denominational prayer in schools and other public facilities. Reagan had put a school prayer amendment forward, etc. So my point being here that here's a history and traditions argument advanced in such a way as to bend doctrine dramatically, um, certainly not a, a, an understanding of the tradition that was shared by all members of the court, but one that happened to accord with uh, a very a successful, I mean, profoundly successful public mobilization concurrent with the time of the decision. My second example is the Lopez case in 1995. So here we have the first Supreme Court decision for a half century after the New Deal, striking down a law of Congress as um, exceeding its power under the Commerce Clause. And uh, in voting to uh, strike down this statute, Neither Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, nor Kennedy O'Connor, even Thomas, um, really invoke original understanding as the basis of their decision. Um, instead, uh, and there's different opinions, and I'm, because our time is short, I'm not going to take the time to go through them, although I'm sure you have in detail. Um, I'll just focus on the Rehnquist uh, opinion. 
He attests loyalty to New Deal precedent, um, but then proceeds to narrow it in a way that, um, as you know, um, stimulates protests from a certain wing of the court, um, and emphasizes that Congress can, recognize, uh, can regulate economic activities that substantially affect interstate commerce. Uh, and to uh, Souter and Breyer's objections that education is an economic activity and from the standpoint of economics would be human capital formation is understood as an economic activity, uh, instead, the Rehnquist opinion begins to emphasize that economic activity has to be interpreted in light of the history and traditions of federalism in the post-New Deal period. So again, the meaning of economic activity is not or derived through the lens of economics, but instead is derived through the lens of history and traditions. Um, and um, if, again, I had more time, I could situate uh, this opinion uh, in its sort of surrounding context. Suffice it to say that... <coughs> The Lopez case was argued on election day of 1994, the day uh, the contract uh, with America succeeded in uh, retaking the Congress on a message of uh, uh, restrict, you know, re returning government to the people and ending big government in Washington. And when the opinion, when the decision came down, it was reported entirely in the frame of this contemporary uh, mobilization. So. Uh, once again, you have a case in which there's a body of doctrine that points to a certain result, and in fact, the court doesn't go the direction in which stare decisis would point it, invokes an idea of history and traditions, which happens to c concur, isn't shared by all members of the, its interpretation of the tradition, is not shared by all members of the court, but happens to accord with a contemporary uh, political, vibrant political mobilization that's succeeding in making itself uh, felt in the representative branches of government. So what do we make um, from uh, these examples? Um, in a very short period of time, I'm just going to close with a few points for, for thought or conversation thereafter. Um, I remain skeptical about both the feasibility and uh, desirability of a value-free uh, account of a history and traditions jurisprudence. Um, I can't really address the question of whether uh, uh, those who are critics of the court's substantive due process jurisprudence should put all their eggs in the Glucksburg basket. <laughs> you know, that's not my question. Um, but it is striking to me that um, there, is, uh, there are a variety of circumstances of doctrinal elaboration in the last couple decades which have really taken, uh, given lively uh, sort of conservative voice to the history and traditions, uh, a modality which is very different than the original understanding modality. And I'm using these, this opportunity to sort of um, admiringly you know, engage with this. Um, and uh, to say that this practice is in fact quite commonplace in our constitutional jurisprudence, that is to say this value-engaged value relationship to tradition. Um, and it's commonplace from a positive standpoint, our jurisprudences, our constitutional jurisprudence is rife with it, and it may well serve very important public functions. Um, because of the time issues, I will simply put on the table uh, for conversation the possibility that um, this way of talking about constitutional change could function as a kind of normative bridge across normative communities. We know there are multiple of them in the United States. Um, 
for the Federal Society. There's also ACS meetings, and there are many groups that never converge in this kind of fora. So we know that we're a nation that uh, is normatively heterogeneous, and yet we share in common a commitment to uh, a text of a constitution, a history, uh, and a variety of traditions which are powerful, meaningful, and compelling to many of us. And making claims on those history and traditions may be ways in which we can engage in conversation with each other about matters over which we passionately disagree. I don't think that uh, a value-free jurisprudence, um, excuse me, that a, a value-based uh, traditions and history and traditions jurisprudence um, is uh, uh, a good thing unmoored. I think if it were to be implemented in the examples I gave, it was actually embedded in something like the, um, I think what we've heard phrases of statutory convergences and uh, Bob Cover used the phrase jurisdictional redundancy, you know, that there are multiple uh, federated and, and horizontally separated system of government has a lot of seats of government which can speak norms. And through that process, we can see ways in which the people over time can speak their values in ways that may be read by courts. This is a dynamic that a number of people on this panel is talking about. Um, I think that history and traditions is a tool, a, b a piece of the conversation as much as the Constitution's text is in that uh, enterprise and possibly uh, a rich one. Um, to the extent that's so, I'm not imagining that history and traditions is going to be used in such a way that jurisprudence is going to either completely diverge from the felt understandings of the American people nor completely mirror them. That is to say, I don't think that courts simply mirror public opinion. There's reasons why conservatives or progressives mobilize out of concern about courts run wild because courts do have a degree, a degree of relative autonomy and the ability to use their authority to teach and to make law change in ways that simply can't be read off the face of majoritarian sentiment. But in the end, I understand courts to be, in a constitutional democracy, responsive institutions and institutions that both understand themselves acting from a role standpoint to be accountable to the American people and an institution that the American people also know how, how to hold to account. Um, and with that, I'll stop for now. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Siegel. Um, lastly, we'll hear from Professor Keith Whittington. He is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton, so a law professor where there are no law students. <laughs> I'm not saying whether that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, so I want to take on a uh, different facet of the uh, multifaceted uh, text we were provided uh, f uh, to initiate this uh, panel uh, and the issues uh, raised under and pick up in part on some of the issues that Professor uh, Eskridge uh, dealt with um, as well, and in particular, um, talk about the question of uh, the extent to which the court, um, and here I want to talk about courts generically, so not simply the U.S. Supreme Court, but often um, state courts um, uh, playing a particular role, but also uh, lower level um, uh, courts and judges and not simply uh, those courts sitting at the top 
of the appellate uh, system, whether the state or the federal appellate court uh, system, but whether courts uh, play a leadership role or should play a leadership role, can play a leadership role, do play a leadership role in defining constitutional values uh, within the American political system. And what's the relative role of courts uh, versus other kinds of institutions or perhaps the people uh, at large uh, in thinking about uh, constitutional values and constitutional rules uh, more generally. And in thinking about this uh, question, um, I want to uh, spend a little bit of time uh, thinking about empirical issues associated uh, with this question and a little less time uh, thinking about uh, normative questions um, associated with this issue. Uh, so let me start uh, with uh, thinking a bit about uh, the empirical question uh, of just how much uh, leadership role uh, courts, uh, in fact, uh, do tend to play uh, in shaping uh, constitutional values and articulating constitutional rules as against other uh, kinds of political institutions that are also uh, engaged in the process of trying to articulate constitutional rules and interpret uh, the constitutions uh, that we have. Um, so as we know, and I think it is certainly true, um, courts are not as responsive or as accountable um, as other institutions within the political system. Um, they are not as immediately responsive to public opinion uh, in general. They can be somewhat uh, less uh, in touch uh, with public opinion uh, than elective uh, executive branch officials or than elected legislatures. Uh, likewise, courts, uh, no matter how they're structured at the state or federal level, um, are generally speaking, less accountable uh, for their decision-making uh, than uh, what we generally have uh, in legislatures uh, and executives in the American system. So courts are, uh, generally speaking, uh, more independent of the people uh, than uh, other kinds of institutions. And I think that's a reasonable starting point for thinking, at least, that they are um, less responsive and less accountable than the other institutions that we're facing. Nonetheless, um, courts are generally tied into the broader political system. It's easy to overestimate and overstate uh, the degree to which courts um, are uh, simply outside of politics or radically independent um, of other political actors or the political system more generally. Uh, whether we're talking about state courts or federal courts, um, courts are tied into the political system in a variety of ways, not least um, judges emerge out of political systems that they rise to the bench uh, through politicized processes, uh, whether that's an appointments process of the type that we see uh, at the federal federal level. Um, or whether that's an electoral process of the type that we see uh, in many uh, state systems. Um, judges are um, political creatures. They're chosen for political reasons. Um, they're chosen with political ideas and objects uh, in mind. Um, and ultimately, uh, judges do not stray very far uh, from uh, the ideas and commitments and values um, of those uh, who tended uh, to appoint them. Um, there are obviously uh, exceptions. There are idiosyncratic judges. There are mavericks. There are people who shift some over time, uh, but as we think about the court system as a whole, we think about individual courts as a whole, uh, as multi-member bodies, uh, courts are generally quite tied into the political system. Moreover, judges share common political and social sensibilities with others operating at the time. To this degree, judges are elite uh, political officials like other elite political officials, and they tend to share similar sensibilities and similar uh, general views about the kinds of political problems and social problems that are confronting 
uh, society and government officials uh, more generally, and that tends to lead judges to behave in ways that are comparable uh, to the ways that other political actors are behaving uh, given any particular political problem, uh, rather than in ways that are radically uh, divergent uh, from the ways that other political actors are, are thinking about sets of problems. The so judges uh, come at these problems with a set of perspectives that are certainly different uh, than the set of perspectives and incentives that drive other political actors as well, and that will lead them uh, to some different uh, solutions and some different actions on some of these issues as well. But it's important to recognize the commonalities uh, between judges and other kinds of uh, political actors that tend to tie judges into uh, the political process more generally, and generally speaking, then tend to lead judges in basically the same general direction um, as other actors within their given political system, whether we're talking a federal system in which Supreme Court justices are basically moving in the same direction uh, as uh, elite national political actors at that given moment, or we're talking state judges who are responsive to the same kinds of political pressures in their particular jurisdiction that may well not match up with um, judges in other jurisdictions and political actors in public opinion in other jurisdictions, but within their own particular jurisdiction, uh, judges are likely to be on more or less the same page uh, with other political actors operating within uh, that jurisdiction um, as well. So given that um, basic uh, connection between courts and other political actors, uh, what are courts doing uh, as they exercise uh, the power of judicial review and just how autonomous uh, might they be and under what kind of circumstances why might we expect them uh, to act uh, somewhat independently um, of other actors? Uh, and one thing courts do is they tend to work on the margins uh, of politics. So rather than making important decisions right at the center um, of politics and controversial political issues, they tend to operate uh, more generally uh, on the margins of politics and make uh, decisions, uh, especially decisions with a fair amount of autonomy uh, to them uh, on the relative margins of politics. And margins occur in a variety of ways. So uh, one uh, type of margins of politics that judges uh, can work with a fair amount of autonomy in are on low salience issues. So issues that other political actors simply don't care very much about, issues that the general public doesn't care very much about. Judges have a fair amount of discretion about how they resolve those kinds of issues and they have a lot of flexibility um, about how to make uh, constitutional decisions uh, in, in those kinds um, of, of, of areas, uh, generally speaking. An awful lot of constitutional law actually looks like that. That is, uh, we tend to think of judicial review as being intrinsically important. We think of constitutional law as being intrinsically important. But from a political perspective, a lot of constitutional law is boring. It's not very important from a political perspective. No one's going to win or lose elections based on that stuff. Most politicians don't care uh, what the court does uh, with most of those decisions. So judges have a fair amount of discretion about what they do on a lot of constitutional issues uh, that they, in fact, uh, confront. Secondly, uh, courts can also work with some degree of independence uh, on the margins when there are divisions within larger political coalitions. So to the extent that the political system is fragmented or their political allies are fragmented when there is no particular majority uh, on a given issue, judges are going to have more independence to uh, push in some directions uh, than they might otherwise have uh, if other political actors or public opinion uh, tends to be lined up in a relatively solid way um, behind a given uh, particular 
particular uh, decision. So when public opinion or political actors tend to be lined up in a fairly clear way, that is uh, the kind of way that we would expect when we think of the counter-majoritarian difficulty, uh, judges tend not to have much independence and they tend not to run up against that. Judges tend not to be counter-majoritarian in that kind of straightforward way. On the other hand, if other political actors, if political coalitions tend to be fragmented, if public opinion is highly divided, uh, judges then have more space to operate. They're more likely to come in and make decisions uh, and stake out uh, some ground precisely because the space is, is relatively fragmented uh, in that context. And somewhat different version of that, though, is thinking about how federal courts might intervene uh, in the context of states. And Professor Eskridge uh, points to uh, an ex a particular example of this, but this can be generalized, um, of thinking about um, states shifting over time, uh, whether uh, it's in the context of homosexual sodomy statutes or whether we think about um, uh, same-sex marriage uh, statutes. But we can also think about this across a variety of other uh, type of cases uh, where the Supreme Court's uh, much more likely to intervene uh, in uh, constitutional issues that are going to impact uh, state-level uh, legislation uh, when uh, there's relatively few states involved, um, either because intrinsically relatively few states have ever adopted those kinds of statutes or relatively few states are invested in the particular policy that the court is striking down, or because states have shifted over time of the sort um, that uh, is, is arising in this, in this particular example, but certainly arises in lots of other examples as well, where you see um, states gradually moving uh, such that by the time the Supreme Court intervenes, uh, it's, the policy is now within a minority of the nation. Uh, a smaller number of states are now committed to it. That's when the Supreme Court swoops in uh, and wipes out uh, the minority of states. But this court is relatively unlikely uh, to reach into a constitutional controversy when most states um, are lined up against it. And you look across the broad range of constitutional decisions the court has made across its entire history, that tends to be the general pattern of how the U.S. Supreme Court operates. It waits until a policy is in the minority or it looks at policies that are in the minority uh, within the states at the moment, and then the court uh, strikes at those kinds of policies. It rarely acts uh, against policies uh, that are actually in the majority, um, although there are uh, occasions. Having said that, the court sometimes makes mistakes about thinking about the political climate. That is, sometimes it perceives that there is a trend or a trajectory that's emerging about the direction in which the political climate is moving, uh, and it um, uh, doesn't anticipate correctly uh, quite uh, how far uh, that climate's going. I think the court's death penalty decisions in the early 1970s, uh, for example, likely reflects that, where uh, states and public opinion seem to be moving toward eliminating the death penalty. The court jumped into the middle of that controversy, and there was a a large backlash against the court, uh, it seems likely that the court uh, uh, incorrectly anticipated where states were going, uh, making a similar calculation there that they were making in other kinds of, of cases as well. Uh, Roe v. Wade itself uh, may well reflect a similar kind of calculation by the court where you have a liberalizing tendency, uh, generally uh, speaking in the states, although one that I think had largely stalled out uh, by the time the court actually intervened. Uh, in row, but the court might well have looked at that and thought uh, that they were um, uh, on the side of history uh, in terms of the, the trajectory in which uh, things were moving, uh, but they wound up a little bit in front of the curve uh, in terms of where uh, po uh, politics and policy uh, actually uh, was heading. 
So let me uh, finally uh, just say a bit uh, about normative issues um, associated uh, with questions of the court uh, exercising this kind of leadership role. Um, I start from a perspective of originalism, as Professor Primus uh, mentioned earlier. I've spent books and articles uh, defending an originalist uh, theory of constitutional interpretation as well as an originalist grounding uh, for the exercise of judicial review, and that's how I tend to think about uh, this issue um, as well from a normative um, uh, perspective, and it makes sense for the court um, to uh, have as its starting point uh, thinking about um, uh, what the Constitution uh, requires uh, from an originalist perspective before uh, thinking about uh, what actions uh, it ought uh, to undertake and thinking about uh, striking a particular um, law down. But even taking from that perspective of, of basically an originalist approach uh, to thinking about issues, I just wanted to note um, a couple of cautions um, about evaluating uh, cases. Uh, one is that the mere fact that a court's decision is controversial uh, in a moment should not by itself give us pause um, about what it is that the court's uh, doing. We should expect the court uh, to issue uh, unpopular and controversial uh, decisions across a range of cases. But by itself, uh, that's not necessarily a signal that the court has done something wrong or has made a mistake or is uh, ruling um, on bad uh, principles or problematic uh, principles. Uh, we expect that constitutional rules, when they're initially adopted at least, uh, should generally be popular. That is, our constitutional rules emerge um, out of a popular system of, of adoption um, such that they were at some point endorsed by popular majorities, although there's some uh, interesting qualifications of that to the extent that constitutional rules might be part of a package deal. It's, it may well be possible that a given constitutional rule was in fact never that popular, uh, but we bought into it because we bought an entire constitution uh, at a single sweep. But generally speaking, it's entirely possible that constitutional rules um, are uh, initially popular uh, at the time that they were adopted. It's possible that the, that the popularity of those constitutional rules might decline over time, uh, such that a court that continues to enforce that constitutional constitutional rule is running up against um, uh, public opinion that's increasingly skeptical of the constitutional rule itself. Um, but it seems equally likely, perhaps more likely, um, that the particular implications or applications of a general constitutional rule uh, may well be unpopular, um, that people may not like a particular application of a rule or a particular implication of a rule, even if the constitutional rule itself uh, is relatively popular. The devil, of course, is in the details of figuring out uh, uh, what the particular implications are um, of a given constitutional uh, rule. But again, the point I want to make here uh, is simply the mere fact that the court has issued an unpopular or controversial decision uh, shouldn't itself be taken as a signal that the court has done something wrong um, or is creating new values uh, in a way that should be problematic or assuming a leadership role uh, that should be seen as problematic. Um, uh, but instead, we have to uh, get behind that uh, in thinking about um, uh, what kind of constitutional rule the court's enforcing and how it's going about uh, that task in enforcing it. Thank you, uh, Professor Whittington. Um, I had hoped to have time to give our panelists some time to respond to one another, but uh, we've had a full and rich discussion um, by which one might read long. Um, and I want to give you uh, the chance to ask questions. And besides, we've all had a chance to stand up, um, which is good for a late afternoon. Um, so if anyone wants to ask a question to our panelists, um, please come to the microphones. Uh, yes. Oh, I 
Hi, this is uh, Jim Warstop from uh, Florida State University. Um, to what extent do you guys think the decision to grant Sergio Rari in uh, Heller was driven by the uh, ascendancy of the gun rights movement and the collapse of the gun control movement in the past, like, five years or so? And to what extent do you think that will color any opinions that come out of, come out of the case? I think uh, the decision to grant review was driven by the perception that there was a conflict in the circuits uh, on this issue. Um, you know, uh, but the gun case is something that I was thinking about as I was listening to my co-panelists up here. You know, um, the, one of the big issues from this kind of uh, Glucksburg uh, tradition enforcing perspective is w what determines the agenda of the court, you know? Why, why is the court enforcing majoritarian conventions on outlier states in certain areas and then letting the states experiment with uh, novel approaches in other areas. Uh, the language of the Constitution doesn't seem to provide a very rock-solid explanation uh, since by definition the substantive due process cases don't really, aren't really controlled by the language of the Constitution. The gun control case is an interesting one uh, because it is controlled by, there is language in the Constitution, squarely on point, but for decades and decades, you know, uh, it was not really seen as a judicially uh, uh, as a judicial issue. There was no, you know, significant litigation headed toward a Supreme Court showdown on whether gun control is constitutional or not. And the just, justices seemed perfectly happy with that implicit decision to keep it off their agenda. I think it was really forced on their agenda by the circuit split. Yes. Um, my name is Brian Barnes, um, Professor Eskridge. You talk about the problem of identifying the appropriate degree of generality in our application of tradition, but I wonder to what extent tradition itself or original understanding may give us some guidance um, in, in making that determination. Well, the, the, the thought might be that um, to some extent the, the way courts have always understood um, the meaning of the 14th Amendment in a particular context would give us some, some guidance, would tell us um, how, in a particular case, a court ought to understand the 14th Amendment. Okay, well, I'm afraid that doesn't help uh, as much as it might uh, <clears throat> because the court over different generations and over different justices has set the level of generality inquiry very differently. So, for example, Bowers and Glucksburg set it as a more specific level of generality, whereas uh, Griswold versus Connecticut uh, sets it at a very general level of uh, generality and some of the incorporation decisions because preceding all of these are uh, decisions incorporating various of the Bill of Rights against the states and many of them are set at very high levels of generality. Uh, does the right to counsel inhere in ordered liberty, etc., etc.? <clears throat> so I don't think, uh, I honestly don't think the Supreme Court opinions are really very helpful at setting the level of generality question uh, here's the way I would say that a judge should think about it. Uh, it does seem to me, uh, I think the key question is, how much has changed, right? So if we had a recent constitutional amendment, there have not been very many of them, but if we had a recent constitutional amendment that specifically addressed a whole cluster of issues, and then as a corollary, there were other issues that arguably came within it, I would say, you know, low level of generality uh, should be probably your inquiry. That doesn't predetermine how you're going to vote, because it might depend on exactly what the evidence is. Uh, and then I would say, but if you're talking about 1868, uh, it seems to me 
if you're going to do the low level of generality, the more concrete stuff. But if circumstances have changed, it either becomes worthless or extraordinarily indeterminate because so malleable and so plastic. And as evidence, you know, I cite the evidence that I provided. You know, I think Justice White is a brilliant justice. Uh, I don't think he's dishonest justice. I don't think he's a lawless justice. I think he's an interpretive justice. Uh, but I think it was, he was incapable, even someone as smart as that, in translating the, the concrete stuff that he had before him, but was able to search. Everything that I mentioned in my verbal presentation was in the statute books. It could have been found. And I found it, and it was easy to find. Uh, and so it's not like Justice White didn't work hard or wasn't smart or couldn't have found it. Uh, it. It was just complicated, right? And if I were arguing the other side, I could come up with, you know, uh, I'm sure better stuff to support poor Justice White. So that's the difficulty, is that law is not easy. Uh, and the, uh, a lot of these legal technologies do run out in the hard cases. Yes. Uh, Daniel Danishrad from NYU. Uh, Professor Siegel, you mentioned the uh, economic distinction that Rehnquist uh, brings up in Lopez. And I was wondering if you might be able to uh, comment a little bit more about what you think he actually meant when he was referring to something as economic in nature. And if you could also comment on the race decision. And actually, this is open to anyone, if anyone else has something to say. Well, my point in raising this is, is first of all, uh, Lopez. Thank you. Um, Lopez claimed fidelity to the New Deal cases, but it's a matter of dispute on the court whether it was acting in fidelity to them. Let's just say that it, it read them with the view that they needed to be constrained a bit. And this gloss on the New Deal cases, namely that Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce um, uh, when it's regulating economic activities that substantially affect interstate commerce. The economic modifier was used to knock out both the Guns Free School Zones Act and also to, it became the basis for objecting to the Civil Rights Remedy of the Violence Against Women Act in the Morrison case that followed shortly thereafter. And the question is, first of all, it's a matter of doctrinal, the common law method that this restrictor was added, but then the question is, how do we tell What's economic? It's sort of resonant of the old direct, indirect effects test. How, how do we decide? And there's, once the test exists, you need to come up with an interpretive methodology to decide what counts as economic activities. So you could consult economics for deciding that. And if you did, you could certainly see education as an economic activity seen through the lens of economics the activities of education are, you know, creation of literacy promotes social wealth, right? Um, but where the opinion goes is to this history and traditions reading of our federalism to give content to the adjective economic. And I, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I have views about whether this is the appropriate use, that is to say whether the federalism cases, excuse me, the Commerce Clause cases, this area of structural constitutional law needs uh, um, 
uh, heightened judicial scrutiny of the kind that it was given in this line of cases. From my standpoint, it doesn't, but it's an intelligible standpoint to me that it does, and this is a way of developing it. I'm just observing that it's ground. There's a particular uh, uh, sort of line of justification. It's a claim about history and traditions. It's entirely values-based. It's not an un the, the history and tradition doesn't provide an answer. That is to say there were plenty of people who predicted completely otherwise. I guess for all of you who've learned constitutional law um, since you all came up in a world with Lopez in it. Um, I'm aged enough that I taught constitutional law classes before the case came down, and no one believed that the case was going to come out that way based on their sense of the prior case law. But now we live in a world in which it's now become reasonable. The baseline has changed. That is actually itself the result of uh, an incredibly multifaceted, powerful, and eff effective movement to alter the way in which we think about what's truly national and what's truly local, which had its expression in Congress uh, as well as on the court. And this opinion was a part of that. Um, so in the end, I don't believe that there's an answer in the stuff of the constitutional, constitutional interpretation that gives you a value-free answer. I think it's up to the court to give a decision that it then persuades the American people is its constitution rightly understood. And that's a very different perspective about where constraint is coming from. Uh, your question about race, I think, is very good. Um, because race, uh, that's the California medical marijuana case. But it was raised on a Commerce Clause ground rather than a privacy ground at the Supreme Court level. And uh, I think that's a wonderful case uh, to show the unfortunate contrast between tradition and precedent. Because if you remember in that case, Justice Thomas dissents based upon a traditionalist, original meaning understanding of the Commerce Clause, right? Interestingly, Justice Scalia concurs and goes along with upholding the application of the Controlled Substances Act, California. And I think Justice Scalia really hits the nail with his head uh, when he uh, uh, openly like, admits, I'm very attracted to what Justice Thomas is saying. But since the 1930s, and frankly, before that, uh, that has not been the approach the court has taken. This has been precedent, which is law, etc. And then what Justice goes off on, and this is your question, Daniel, uh, is Wickard versus Filburn. And Justice Scalia says there's a case on point, it, close enough on point, reasonably on point. Wickard and Filburn, that's the farmer case. Uh, and Scalia says Congress could reasonably have concluded, like the Congress in the 1930s, uh, that even homegrown marijuana will contribute to some marijuana market that the, con that the Congress then wants to regulate in the Controlled Substances Act. And I think that's a real smart opinion, but it does reveal some of these, these ambiguities and tensions. Um, I'd just like to point out that there was a popular constitutional way of resolving these cases, uh, consistently Lopez, Morrison, and Raich, um, which would have avoided some of these uh, uh, verbal gymnastics about uh, traditionalist understandings of economics and so forth. And that was simply that Congress had made no statutory findings of an effect on interstate commerce in either the Lopez uh, statute or the Morrison statute that were before the courts, whereas it had very extensive findings in the uh, Controlled Substances Act. So if the court wanted to adopt a clear statement approach, which is a version of a kind of popular constitutionalism, which says that we're going to interpret the Constitution in partnership with Congress, and we're going to make Congress speak clearly before we 
permit regulation in this area, it could have come out the way it did in all three of those cases, consistent with that approach. Can I just add that there were no findings in Lopez, but the Morrison case, there were actually... In the legislative history. Yeah. There and uh, if we're going to be picky about this... That's what a clear statement rule is. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, just to chime in here, the one other thing I'd say about, about Lopez is that why, you know, we've been talking about different modes of constitutional interpretation, but one thing to think about in the split between Scalia and Thomas, so when you think about Lopez, you think about Rach, is that, you know, while Thomas has a, a, a clear, a nice textual analysis, which is hard to dispute on the text, um, Justice Scalia, in a decent original understanding, Justice Scalia doesn't Join, one might ask why, but you also have to think about institutional responsibility. So, you know, had Justice Scalia, I mean, imagine there are five votes for Justice Thomas's position, and now we're, you know, you know, bombed back to an 18th century um, economy. I just don't think the court was willing to do that, however attracted they were to some normative commitment to originalism tradition. Or, or, so I, I wouldn't say it was necessarily driven by command for precedent, but more for sort of um, institutional uh, concerns. May I tell a two-minute anecdote? Yeah, two minutes, and we've got to take this last question. So every uh, two years, I bring my class to a Supreme Court argument. We visit with Justice Scalia afterwards. The last two times we've done this, the students have asked him to talk about Griswold versus Connecticut. Uh, after the obscenities die down, uh, then the students ask him, well, Justice Scalia, would you overrule Griswold today? And the first time they asked him that, which was a couple, three years ago, he looked at him. He said, nah. And I almost fell out of my seat. I said, why on earth not? And he said, it's been there for so long. So that's from the horse's mouth. I also think that the Bork hearings had something to do with Griswold's status today. You know, that they, the direction, that Glucksburg is actually an effect of this, that um, the critique of this whole line of cases shifted off of Griswold and went after Rose straight on. And did, you know, there was some response. I mean, if our themes are popular constitutionalism. It's worth noting that Thomas is not the only option on, on Ray Shar Lopez, right? I mean, there, I mean, Thomas is the, ex, is the extreme outlier on how far to go. I think the correct one, right? So, so you just get rid of the new deal. But the court wasn't going there. You could have gone to less far than that. And Rehnquist lays that out to say we go back to the new deal and we get rid of the great society. And that, and that gets you. <laughs> And that, and that gets you the dissenters result in Raish as well as getting you the majority opinion in Lopez. And that's the Rehnquist solution, which, which at least is a reasonable compromise. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have time for one last question. Uh, Matthew Morley from Ave Maria School of Law here in Ann Arbor. Um, I'm interested what any or all of you have to say on this question, professors. Um, Professor Hills in the first panel referred to his Westphalian theory of rights, the idea that like the Peace of Westphalia, you nationalize or constitutionalize the rights on which there is a deep national consensus rather than jumping in and trying to resolve a controversy that's fairly split, as some of you referred to. And at the same time, in a later panel, I think one panelist referred to the idea that appointed judges, in his opinion, could be more professional because they're looking to their legacy um, which what professionals do, as opposed to trying to please the public, which he thought elected judges might be more apt to do. In light of those ideas, I was wondering, should courts think of their task in terms of legacy 
what they're leaving to the society going forward or in terms of where their um, decisions will be situated in the current consensus or political order, regardless of a judge's um, political philosophy. It seems the drawback of legacy could be ego might, enter, might enter into it too much, but a good aspect is you think really carefully about the implications of decisions. And it seems looking at consensus too much, a drawback might be that you're looking too much at public opinion, or perhaps a uh, benefit might be you don't destabilize society for conservative activist reasons or liberal activist reasons. I hope that question doesn't take on too much. Well, let me say three brief things. Uh, thing, thing number one, I do think uh, the judges' comparative advantage and their job description is that they have to deal with legal materials. <clears throat> and so I think that that should be what judges do in all these cases. Uh, that's why I would emphasize, if they're going to talk about consensus, I do believe they have to look to legal materials. If you're going to talk about tradition, I think you should need to look at legal materials and not opinion polls. And I think if you're going to talk about evolving consensus, I think you should look at state statutory convergences, federal statutes, and so on, etc. So that's number one. Um, number two, uh, it does seem to me that your question still has some bite because much of the Constitution is open textured. And it is binding on us, and it strikes down things if they're not consistent with it. Uh, and so, for better or for worse, uh, what judges are doing, certainly at the federal level and often at the state level, is a common law constitutionalism. You know, they can say whatever they want to say, uh, but that is what they're doing. And that's probably what the right to privacy is. And it's probably the way equal protection clause is done as well. And it does seem to me there that um, uh, it's both probably safer for judges and better for the country uh, for judges not to stick their necks out very often. And when they do stick their necks out, and this is my third point, uh, is they should bide their time. And they should do statutory interpretation or other doctrines that allow for legislative, popular, executive response. That's the advantage of clear statement rules. That's the advantage of reversing the burden of inertia. Is that uh, I think the biggest mistake of cases like Roe was that a lot of people justifiably felt that the Supreme Court was trying to close a conversation prematurely. Uh, and I think technique... Uh, can be uh, just as important uh, as timing in that respect. I can't help it. Um, if you're interested in seeing any relatively recently done history of Roe's reception on this question, Robert Post and I have a piece called Roe Rage, Democratic Constitutionalism and Backlash, and it does work through the material, and it raises at least a question whether, in fact, people were responding to the court's reasoning or something else, and it being the hour it is, I'm not going to even remotely go there except to invite you to take a look at the piece. It was in the Harvard Civil Liberties Civil Rights uh, Review last fall. Cass Sunstein also has a piece on backlash there. He is another in Stanford as well. But there's a, a good chunk of material that sort of digs through the actual years afterwards and, and asks the question, is what happened itself a response to bad decision making or something else? Okay. okay um, I'd like to thank all of our panelists.